Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we'll begin in verse 37. We have a a long passage to get. There's really four sermons here, and we're going to do them all today, so I hope you're comfortable. And uh, it'll be a wonderful time together. Luke 9, verse 37, you'll find that on page 867 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And while you're finding your way to Luke 9, I do just want to uh, draw your attention to the bulletin. You see there... Oh, actually, it's not here anymore. Why did it disappear? Well, you know, it was there last week, and I, I meant to draw your attention to it then. Um, I do want to give you thanks for the offering that you gave to uh, support the persecuted church. If I remember correctly, it was somewhere around fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars that we were able to send off in order to support those who are suffering for the cause of Christ. And I'm just very moved by your generosity, and I trust that God will do a great and mighty work through that. I think last year we gave around $9,000, and so it excites me just to see that God is working in the church in a spirit of giving. I do want you to understand that because of your sacrifice, there will be people living in uh, persecuted contexts, which will be will, will find support and will find refuge and will find in, uh, scripture and teaching and and materialistic aid because of your sacrifice. You are, are impacting the nations, and I hope that you will continue to do so. As you know, as Pastor Josh explained that we are now beginning our offering for international missions called our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. You may not be aware of this, but the missionaries that the Southern Baptists send out are fully funded by the mission board. That is, they don't go to each individual church and ask for that help and support. And so I'm excited that we can be part of this mission board. But please understand that over half the budget our mission board uses throughout the year comes from this offering. And so I hope that you will also give sacrificially to this. In fact, it's been our family's conviction that as our family has grown, and, and of course it's very easy for Christmas to become the focus to leave Christ, We want to intentionally make sure that our family understands why it is we celebrate Christmas. And one way we do that is that we give sacrificially to the Lottieman Christmas offering. In fact, we have committed that every dollar we spend on our Christmas celebration, we will match that dollar for dollar in both the uh, offering for the persecuted church and the Lottieman Christmas offering. I don't say that to boost up my family. I say that to challenge you to learn to give sacrificially to the cause of missions. Christ has come that the nations might know him. And this is one way in which we can send out that word. In fact, we're sending the word not just to the nations, but to North Carolina. Mike, I'm going to ask you to come on up. I totally forgot that you're here. And, but then I saw you there and I said, well, let's have Mike come up. Of course, this is our, um, unforgettable brother, uh, Mike Witt, who is serving the Lord by ministering to the college students at University of North Carolina at Charlotte through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And Mike, uh, it's good to have you here, brother. Will you share what's going on down there? Absolutely. Good morning, church. It's great to see you, see so many familiar faces and new ones, and of course, as always, to behold Pastor Stephen's beard. It's just <laughs> an amazing thing. I mean, yes, I have beard envy. Um, this church, whether you know it or not, has supported Cheryl and I with InterVarsity, with the work happening at UNC Charlotte for the past 13 and a half, will be 14 years with your prayer, with your finances, with your encouragement, you have, as I said, whether you've known it or not, have impacted 
so many lives and you've impacted my life and Cheryl's life. And we are deeply grateful for that. Um, this, after this June, the Lord is leading us to transition away from InterVarsity onto different things. If you're interested in hearing more, please find us afterwards. Um, but the Lord is moving and working at UNC Charlotte. And um, there are students who are showing up to our community who do not have a relationship with God, but they are there because they see Jesus being represented. And they are curious and they want to know and meet the man that we worship and that we have surrendered our lives to. There's another group of students who have said, yes, we want to grow deeper in our foundation and grow our roots deep in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so Brent Campbell, my co-staff and I are leading discipleship training to help them witness the transformational work that the Lord is doing in their lives so that their lives can simply be a witness where they can share and uh, with their friends, with their professors, with their parents, with everyone they come in contact with, um, who Jesus is. And just in September, in our annual beach retreat, there's a new student who was involved who Friday night, as I was leading the session, unbeknownst to me, he tried to take his life Friday night there at our retreat center. But the Lord intervened, and it is nothing short of a miracle that he is still with us here today. And I think about the fact that what if InterVarsity at UNC Charlotte didn't exist? This student could have been alone in a dorm room somewhere, and I don't want to think about what that possible outcome could have been. But he was there with us in a community that welcomed him, that accepted him, that wanted to help him. And we were able to be there for him, to, to walk with him through that. He's currently recuperating at home with his parents, and he will be joining us again, our community, and coming back to school this January, where I'm so excited to help him understand the hope that he has that is only found in Jesus Christ. You were a part of that, whether you know it or not. You were a part, by an extension of your prayers and finances, of literally saving a student's life this past fall. And so Cheryl and I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you for the church home and family that you've been over the past 14 years. We are deeply, deeply grateful to you. Amen. Amen. Well, brother, uh, we want to pray for you. Uh, we're thankful for you and God's speed, brother, and guidance in your new endeavors. And I'm excited for you and your family. Father, we thank you for our brother Mike and his uh, beloved uh, wife Cheryl and their girls. And we thank you for... Uh, 14 years of faithful ministry, Father, on your behalf for the glory of King Jesus as they reach out to these students who so desperately need to know the God who made them and the God who sent their son to save them. I thank you, Father, for a very literal, tangible salvation, saving this man uh, from death and from eternal death. And, Father, we thank you for that work. We pray for him and ask that you would help him find healing that is found only in Christ Jesus. For he is the Prince of Peace. He has come uh, to give us purpose and joy and delight in him. May he find what he's looking for in Christ. May you use Mike and the other students uh, to minister to him. And will you guide the Witt family, Father, coming this uh, summer as they transition into a new adventure? May your hand rest upon them. Father, may you uh, make their way straight. Father, will you equip Mike to continue to provide for his family financially and spiritually? Just bless this home, Father, as they continue to serve you in a new way. Will you be pleased, Father, to pour out your blessings upon them? And now we thank you for your word in which we can study. Will you help us to see Christ in his word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you, brother.
Some hundreds of years ago, the Renaissance painter Raphael painted a portrait of Luke chapter 9. In fact, I have the picture for us that's going to be on the screen in a moment. It's a beautiful uh, picture. Uh, We haven't even read scripture yet. I'm all confused, am I? All right. We're just going to just rewind the tape, guys, and we'll start all over. Um, Let's start in Luke 9, verse 37. Hear now the word of God. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. Son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he did not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Father, again, we thank you for this this word, this glimpse of our Lord and how he instructs us. May he speak to us through his spirit. Even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I was saying, the Renaissance painter Raphael painted a picture of Luke chapter 9. It was a, probably his greatest masterpiece. And you see there at the top of the picture, Jesus on, on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's floating off the ground. So Raphael took a little poetic license. We have no record of that. But you notice the cloud there behind him, as we considered last week. The, the, the cloud that's radiating light and the glory of God there. And Moses and Elijah a little bit lower, gazing at Jesus adoringly. And then you have Peter and James and John getting up from their nap there. On, on this mountain, which in, in my estimation is, is embarrassingly low. But anyways, uh, there they are on, the, on top of the mountain. But you notice the contrast between what's going on in the valley. There's a commotion there, isn't there? An argument as the crowd gathers at the center. I don't know if you can see him. Is a boy with crazy eyes. They're pointing at him as the father holds him up. See, the boy has a demon. And the disciples are unable to help. 
I think the power of this picture, and more importantly, the power of, of Luke 9, is the contrast between these really two scenes. You know, and you have a mountain, uh, and there on top of this majestic display of Jesus' eternal glory. Then in the valley, you have pain and suffering and failure. God at the top, and the devil at the bottom. And the truth of the matter is, is that we might have an occasional mountaintop experience. But life is lived in the valley, isn't it? Life is lived amongst frustration and pain and difficulty, and it's not always pretty. You could take that picture off for us now. And I want to talk to you this morning about what life is like in the valley, if you will, as we see four successive failures by the apostles. And everyone, they will receive Jesus' correction. After all, on the mountain, the father said to the apostles, this is my son, my chosen one. Remember what he said? Listen to him. Well, they're going to have to listen to him four successive times when they sin four successive times. He corrects them. Of course, this is not simply sins made by the apostles. My hope is that you and I will listen to him too. These are sins that you and I make, four common sins to us who follow after Christ. And so may God be good to us today and search our hearts as we consider four sins that Christians commit. First of all, consider the sin of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, a lack of dependence on God. It occurs the day after the transfiguration, as we see in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. You, you remember, of course, on the mountain, as we just mentioned, that this was the greatest display of the glory of God in some 600 years, perhaps. There, Jesus radiating his glory, Moses and Elijah, dead for centuries, standing at his side, the Shekinah glory of God appearing, God speaking out of the cloud. Can, can you imagine what the apostles, Peter, James, and John, must have felt? What must have been going on in their heart? Can you put yourself in that position? I assume they're excited and, and confused, afraid, and exhilarated. And all this, these emotions that are going on in their heart, all this excitement is, is shattered, if you will, as they descend down the mountain. And Luke tells us they met a great crowd there. And according to Mark, they're in a heated argument. And in the midst of this, this great argument of this mass amount of people, it is all shattered by the pathetic cry of a father. Verse 38 tells us, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son. For he is my only child. And we learn in a moment this man's terrible state, or at least the terrible state of his son. By the way, this is once again his only child. We see that theme throughout Scripture as these people come for Je- to, to have Jesus help their children. It's quite often their only child. We know from the term he uses that this child is not a baby, nor is he a young man. So most likely he's an elementary age boy. And I wonder if it would help you to understand this story, if you could even perhaps put yourself in the place of this dad, uh, especially for you dads out there, maybe granddads. Of course, moms and grandmas as well. Can you, can you imagine what this man is about to describe happening to your son? Perhaps this hits home for me. I have three of these elementary age sons. And, and the, the description is terrible, as we see in verse 39. And behold, a spirit seizes him, And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. 
a heartbreaking condition. As we see this, this demon convulses him, throws him into seizures. This boy perhaps had some biological ailment that the demon seems to be taking advantage of, compounding it as he seizes him. And the father says he not only convulses him, but the boy cries out when he does. Can you imagine what that scream might sound like coming from perhaps one of your children or grandchildren as he is thrown to the ground and begins to foam at the mouth? The man says it shatters him. Mark tells us that the boy at this point would grind his teeth and his body would become rigid. You, of course, understand what the demon's trying to do. He's trying to destroy him. In fact, Matthew tells us he doesn't simply throw him down. He often, if there's a fire nearby, he'll try to throw him into the fire. And if there's not fire, he'll try to throw him into the water. And he has done this in the past. This boy, I trust, has, has burn marks and scabs and scars to prove the point. And, and moreover, he doesn't even know when the next attack's coming. As you see at the end of verse 39, the father says it hardly leaves him. In other words, it happens often. Dad is afraid to go to work in the morning. He's texting by 10, if you will, saying, how is he doing? Is everything okay? His heart is totally consumed by his son as he's living out this nightmare. Occasionally, we take our, our seven kids camping, and when we do, we like to take them to a place where there's a pool, and, and the kids have a great deal of fun in the pool, and it's very relaxing for them, but it is not relaxing for mom and dad, right? We divide them up, and you get boys, you get girls, or you get these three, and you take these four, and we are just for hours constantly searching to make sure heads are above water, and just looking, have you seen so-and-so, and have you seen so-and-so, and finally when the swim's done, we come back to camp, and you think you would relax then, you get a campfire going, and you're roasting marshmallows and whatever, and we're constantly trying to keep the little ones from stumbling in the fire, or someone from getting poked in the eye with a flaming stick, right? It is, we're on, on guard all the time just trying to protect our kids from each other. Well, this dad has literally pulled his son from the water. He has literally gone into the fire to bring him out of it. How long has this condition been going? Mark tells us from this boy's infancy. His entire life, he has been like this. And so can I, can I just say as a side, this is not the point of this passage, but it is taught here. Can I, can I just tell you very clearly, Satan hates you. You understand that? You see what demons do? They, they pick on little boys and they break daddy's hearts. That's what they do. There's nothing that the spiritual realm wants to do for you. There's nothing that these demonic spirits will give you. There's nothing you will gain from them. They hate you and they want to destroy you. And I tell you that because it seems in our day it is very in vogue for uh, there to be, you know, the glorification of witchcraft and vampires and necromancy and, and all of that. And, and I am not in any way, please don't hear me, I'm not telling you what to read or what movies to watch. You decide with, with the Spirit's help what, what you want to do for your life. But just beware, I want to tell you, beware of opening doors. Beware of allowing influence in your life. Because these demons will only bring terror upon you. This dad knows this terror. In fact, he came to the apostles and pled for help, as we see in verse 40. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. I imagine he came looking for Jesus and he found the apostles and said, well, where's Jesus? And they said, well, he's backpacking up the mountain. And he says, well, I have this condition. Can you help me? And they tried to help. But according to this dad, they failed. 
which is interesting, isn't it? It's interesting in light of earlier in Luke 9. When, look at verse 1. Remember this about a month or so ago when we considered this passage? And he, Luke 9, verse 1, he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over, what is it? All demons. What kind of demons? All of them. They have power and authority over all demons. And they go out on this preaching and this healing and this demon casting out crusade that might have lasted uh, uh, weeks, months, maybe even longer months. And they go out and they begin to do this work and there's great victory over the spiritual realm. They, they find great success in these spiritual battles, right? This is not their first time they've confronted a demon. They've already been given all power and authority to cast out all demons. And yet now, just weeks later, they fail. It seems that Christ is not pleased with it. For verse 41 tells us, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation. Now, the question is, who is he talking to? It seems to me he's talking to the Father. After all, the Father has brought his kid for help. I'm not sure he's talking to the crowds either. They don't seem to play much of a role in this story. I think he's specifically referring to the apostles. These apostles, he says, you faithless and twisted generation. By the way, I don't know if you realize this, he is directly quoting Moses. Remember when Moses, after meeting with God up upon the mountain, walked down that mountain, and he found a faithless and twisted generation and said as much. And once again, Jesus is, is reenacting this Sinai, as we can, this Sinai event as we considered last time and calling them out, you faithless and, gener- faithless and twisted generation. That's interesting because I assume they tried, right? They tried to cast out this demon, didn't they? They they did their best. I assume they really wanted to help. The problem, I don't think, was their loss of ability, their loss of power or the wrong techniques. I would suggest to you the reason that they failed to do this is that they moved from trusting in God to trusting in their own abilities, Trusting in their own skill set, trusting in in their own techniques and their own giftedness. I could imagine very easily that Bartholomew walks up and says, I got this one. You all back up for a second. And he fails. And Nathaniel says, wait a second, Bartholomew, let me show you how this is done. And he walks up and he fails. I think this might be the case because according to Luke 9 and verse 10, they seem pretty confident about their past success as we see on their return. That's their return from their, their miraculous crusade. The apostles told them, all that they had done. Let me tell you, Jesus, everything that happened when we were out there. And now they're at the foot of this mountain and unable to help. In fact, Mark will help us understand a little bit more. They'll ask Jesus, why why couldn't we cast this one out? And Jesus says to them, you know what he says? You should have prayed. Why why didn't you pray? You, You think you could just... You could just go through the motions and not rely upon me? Of course, raises the question for us, I think, isn't it? Why, why don't we pray? Why don't you pray? And I assume it is because you and I at times don't feel like we need God's help. We got this covered. Right? And, and Jesus coming to them and say, are you really going to fight demons in my name without even talking to God about it? Are you really going to try to do this without any help or guidance? And they think, well, we got this. We went to exorcism seminary. We know all about how to handle this. We don't need to pray. You see, this is why they failed. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. So I wonder, my brothers and sisters in Christ, what about you? What about me? How much of our life do we live like this? 
How much of our life do we think, you know, I don't need to pray about this. I don't need to pray about my job. I know how to do that. I don't need to pray about my marriage. I know how to do that. I don't need to pray about my children. I know how to take care of that. I don't need to pray about teaching Sunday school or preaching a sermon or decisions I need to make or relationships I might enter or an activity that I might get into. I have no need to do this. I've done it before. I know what I am doing. You see, the point of this story is not about casting out demons. The point of this story is that you and I need to rely upon God for everything. I imagine some of you have homes that are not where you want them to be. Homes in disorder, perhaps marriages that are struggling or teaching that is fruitless or finances that are dwindling or your even personal growth with God is is not excelling. You find yourself anxious and worried. And I wonder if it happens to be because you do not go to God for help. In fact, usually when life is a mess, that's when we go to God for help, right? When things get bad, that's when we begin to pray. But there might be a reason that things are bad because you weren't praying beforehand. I think so often we live like practical atheists. Though we believe in God, we don't believe we need his help. We believe we got it under control. I think Jesus is addressing that. Look again in verse 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I wonder if he's not only saying that to them today. I wonder if he's saying that to us today. I think he's telling us, I will help you. I will put fruitfulness in your life. You just need to come to me. You're not supposed to do this on your own. You're not supposed to live life on your own. Why don't you trust me? Why don't you talk to me? Why don't you pray to me? I'll tell you, my friends, there are really two options in life. You either depend on God or you'll fail. It's either faith or failure. I don't think there's a third option. And so I wonder if there's some area in your life in which you're not depending upon God. You're just depending upon your own skills. And Jesus clearly is upset with this type of life. And he says, well, if they can't help, I will. As you see at the end of verse 41, bring your son here. Any doubt to the trauma in which this boy was enduring is immediately cast aside. As you see in verse 42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, right? The demon makes one last attempt to kill the boy to keep him from Jesus. He does this all the time, by the way, our enemy. When people start to get close to God, he makes these last ditch attempts to put doubt and confusion and sin in their life to keep them from coming. And and here he's doing it with this boy. Can you picture, picture in your mind this boy wallowing in the dirt? Can you picture him mutely staring at you with terror in your eyes, pleading, and you are helpless to do anything about it. If you're helpless, Jesus is not, as we read on in verse 42. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. You notice there in that passage, Jesus does three things. He rebukes the demon, heals the boy, and blesses the dad. My favorite part, to be perfectly honest, is the last part. Here's your son back. He's whole now. Your son will never be tormented again. Jesus restores families. And we've seen this in our study of Luke. Remember in Luke 7, he was on his way to Nain and coming out of the town was what? The funeral possession of the widow with her only child. He raised him from the dead and the Bible tells us he gave him back to his mother. 
Or in Luke chapter 8 when Jairus pleads for the life of his only child, his only daughter, and Jesus goes and raises this little girl from the dead as easy it is for you to raise a sleeping child. And the Bible says he gave her back to her father. And once again, Jesus gives back this boy to his dad. The demon had him. Now his daddy has him back. You know why? Because Jesus loves children. And Jesus loves families. And Jesus loves dads, especially dads that bring their kids to Christ. Moreover, Jesus has all power over every force that opposes him. And moreover, Jesus did not come to this earth for mountaintop experiences. He could have stayed in heaven for that. He came into a world ravaged with sin and hurt, pain and suffering, and he intends to do something about it. And clearly he does here, and everyone is dumbfounded, overwhelmed, verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. Right? They've never seen anything like this. The father fails, the disciples fail, the, the demon wins, right? But here comes Jesus, undefeated. And once again, he takes care of this issue with just but a word. I don't know if you could, they're, mar- they're astonished. Can you hear their cheers? Can you, can you hear their shouts? Can you hear their uh, applause as they're just simply amazed by this? Doesn't this passage make you want to shout a little bit? I mean, it makes me want to jump up and down. It's, it's incredible to see what our Lord has done here. He cannot, does not meet a need that he cannot address. I wonder, do you have needs? My friend who's here, you're caught in sin. You're just in this cycle over and over and over again. Others of you are, are, I feel like you're just drowning in suffering. I tell you, if you come to Christ, come to Christ. Stop trying to live life on your own. He is here to help. And he clearly helped here. Well, while everyone is cheering, he draws the apostles aside to once again discuss his death as we consider, secondly, the sin of willfulness. I want to call it the sin of unsubmission, but I looked it up and it's not a word, okay? So, but that's what I mean here. Willfulness, unsubmission. Verse, reading on verse 43, but while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Right, You see the contrast in the midst of the cheers and the celebration and the amazing popularity of Jesus. He pulls his 12 aside and says, okay, guys, understand something. I'm going to be killed. Right? See, he, they, they know he's the Christ. They confess him as the Christ. They've seen him glorified on the mountain. And now they're down in the valley and everybody loves him. And he pulls them aside and says, don't, don't miss it. Don't be confused about my popularity. It is not going to last. In fact, he wants them to get this. Verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. Listen to me. This is important. Do not miss what I'm telling you. I'm going to be betrayed In fact, he's already told them this. Remember in Luke 9, verse 22, he said to them, but a week ago, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised again. Right? And I understand it looks like nothing's going to stop me. I look like I, I, I can't be stopped. Please understand that my ministry here is ultimately not to cast out demons or perform other wonders. I have come to die. And the reason is because our trouble is not necessarily demonic oppression. And certainly that's not our main trouble, is it? It's not sickness. It's not a lack of food. It, it is sin. It is wrath. It is hell. It is a holy God that is opposed to sinners. And Jesus has come to forgive sin, hasn't he? And ultimately 
defeat the devil and end suffering. And he says it all is going to come, come to an end. But I must die. I must, I must sacrifice myself. I must be your substitute upon the cross. I will ca- cause all your problems one day to be vanquished because I will bear them. I'm going to be handed over. They're going to kill me. This, of course, is the second time he has told them this. And so we, by now, they get it, right? Okay, Jesus, we don't like it, but, but we accept your plan is better than ours. I'm afraid not, as we read in verse 45. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive, and they were afraid to ask him anything. There are four ways in which their, under, their lack of understanding is expressed here. Number one, it says quite simply, they lacked understanding. Number two, the meaning was concealed. Number three, they lacked perception. Number four, they declined to ask about it. Now, this is somewhat confusing to me, especially the part that uh, he says it was concealed from them. It doesn't seem to be a riddle. He clearly wants them to understand. He says, let these words sink into your hearts. So what's going on? In fact, look back in chapter 8. Let me just show you. Remember what Jesus said to these same apostles in verse 10. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Right? So he's already told them, listen, you guys have the inside story. He wants them to understand this in light of all the praise that he's receiving. The reason they don't get it is they don't want to believe it. It's weakness. It's unthinkable. That's not the plan. And they will battle against this plan to the very end. They will not submit to God's plan. And you and I, just like them, have this ability to not hear what God wants. Because we have our plans. We have our dreams. We have our agenda. And we hold on to them no matter what God says to us. And we will not let go of them. In fact, Jesus very clearly has implications for them. Remember right after he said in verse 22, I'm going to be killed. He went on to say, and by the way, if you follow me, you too must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me, right? Because there's going to be a hardship for you. I have a plan for you too. So many people want to know, what, what's the will of God for me? What is God's will? I'll tell you God's will for you. His, God, his will for you is to stop sinning, right? His will for you is to turn from your sin and So often we refuse because we won't look at the cross and see the cost of our forgiveness. He wants you to be gracious, doesn't he? He wants you to not be judgmental against people that are different from you and dress different from you and act different. He wants you to forgive them. And so often we refuse to do so because we fail to look at the cross and see what it is we have received. He wants us to be generous, doesn't he? He wants us to be sacrificial. And we refuse to do so because we fail to look at the cross and to see his sacrifice. I think the will of God is very clear. And I understand we want the particular will for me, but let's just start with the generalities of God's will for us. Are you obeying the revealed will of God for you? Scripture, is there some area in your life that you're refusing to submit to him? Please understand, he wants you to submit for your own good. A sin of willfulness they commit. Well, they're afraid to ask Jesus about it, but evidently they're not afraid to bicker about which one of them is the best. As we consider, thirdly, the sin of self-promotion, the sin of pride. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, this may be the dumbest conversation ever. As they get together... 
and debate which one of them is greatest after they saw Jesus transfigured, right? And he's talking to Moses and Elijah, and God is with him. And then he comes down the mountain and casts out a demon with ease. And these guys who can't even stay awake during the prayer meeting decide to argue which one of us is better than the other. In fact, one pastor put it this way. Trying to determine the greatest disciple was a little bit like trying to find the world's tallest pygmy. Even if it were possible to figure out the answer, it would hardly matter. It would, of course. Of course, the timing is pretty bad as well, because Jesus just got done telling them, I'm going to be killed soon. And there are a lot of ways to respond to that, but probably one way not to respond to that is, is to argue about which one is better than the other. Right? And you wonder how it started. Maybe Peter, James, and John, who had the privilege of going up on the mountain, came down the mountain, began to brag about what they saw, what the other nine must have missed out. He must like us best, they perhaps thought. And you can imagine someone else responding. Well, Peter, I heard it. He took you up the mountain because he can't afford to leave you out of his sight. And so that's why uh, you're up there by his side. He actually trusts us to be alone without him. And so on it went, these petty jealousies and these self-promotion makes me wonder remember peter back in luke 5 on his knees in a boat depart from me lord for i am a sinful man go away i can't be with you or matthew in the tax collector's booth where are those guys what's going on in their heart as they have this very silly argument this is the kind of argument that children have on a playground isn't it and so jesus in response grabs a child to solve the problem he says to them in verse 47 Jesus, knowing the reason of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. He says, notice the end of that statement. The least among you all is great. It's interesting to me because Jesus doesn't say, why do you care about greatness? Why are you even talking about this? He doesn't say that at all. In fact, I would suggest to you that greatness is good, right? Do you want a decent surgeon or do you want a great surgeon, right? Do you want a surgeon who went to half his classes, pulled C minuses and performs decent surgeries? Or do you want a great surgeon? Do you want a decent pilot or a great pilot, right? Do you want to be a decent husband or a great husband? You want to be a decent parent or a great parent? You want to be part of a decent church or a great church? You want to have decent theology or great theology? You want to be a decent employee or do you want to be a great employee? I think greatness is built into us. We should long for greatness. We should pursue greatness. And I would suggest to you, the person who says, oh, I don't want to be great is probably just lazy because pursuing greatness is difficult. And Jesus doesn't say, don't desire greatness. I think we're built for greatness. I think we ought to long for greatness. They say we want to be great. Jesus says, okay, that, that, that's, that's a good idea. Let me show you how. Right? He wants to show us how. And the reason is because our understanding of greatness is perverted, it's sinful, it's ugly. We understand greatness, there's really two ways we understand greatness. The first way is we, under, we don't want to be great, we just want to be greater, Right? I don't care how great I am, just as long as I'm better than you. Which is what this argument is about, is it not? An argument arose among them as to which one of them was great. No, which one of them was greater, right? They, they, want, they want to just be better than others. And this is built into us, I'm afraid. We have this in our heart. I was listening on the radio a couple weeks ago, and there's a social scientist talking, and, and he said that people would rather make less money if that meant they are making more money than others. In other words, if you had an option to make $70 and everyone else made 80 
Or you had the other option of making $60 and everybody else made 50. Nine out of 10 people will choose to, to make less money as long as they're making more than other people. This is in our heart. This is in their heart, right? We want to be better. That's called pride. I want to be better. I want to be smarter, right? I want to be more godly. I want my church to be better than your church. I want my children to be better behaved than your children. And I'll tell you, it kills community. It destroys us. This competition that takes place, right? It will either lead to pride and arrogance or despair, right? So that's one type of greatness that we pursue. The other type of greatness that's sinful is not longing to be great, but longing to be known as great, right? We just want to be famous, We want everybody to know us. We want to Google our name and see what comes up. We want to be known by people, right? And, and, and this is what we seek after. We don't want to accomplish something necessarily great. We just want, we want to be famous for the sake of being famous. We want people to cheer us and shout our name and be aware of us. And Jesus pulls him aside and says, listen, true greatness is not wanting to be first while others are second, third, and fourth. True greatness is a willingness to be last. So not know what he says at the end of verse 48. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. True greatness is not positioning yourself to be praised by others. It's actually positioning yourself to serve and to bless others. This is not what he says earlier in verse 48. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. I wonder, is that your understanding of greatness? Do you understand greatness this way? I hear all the time that parents say to their children, you could be anything you set your mind to. Now, I, I think that's a silly statement, to be perfectly honest. I, th- I think there's about 100 things wrong with that statement. Not the least of it, it's not true. But anyways, let's, just, let's say we say that. Do we have in mind when we say you could be anything that you want to be? Are we, are we saying, listen, honey, you could be as loving as you set your mind to. Listen, listen sweetheart, you could be as generous and sacrificial as you dream about. Or all are we actually referring to achievement and status and success and wealth? I, I wonder if our understanding of greatness lines up more with the apostles and less with Jesus. I think he's trying to help us by helping them. That there's true greatness. He says, when, when, you, when, when you, he takes his child on his lap and he says, receiving this child, serving this child is the path to greatness. Now the reality is that children, children are not great. That's not what he's saying. This is not a, a declaration that, ch- that children are great, though I think children are great. And in our culture, we think children are great. Your child turns one and 40 people show up to his house, right? And there's ribbons and there's packages and balloons and ceremonial food and there's singing and pyrotechnics and, and there's all sorts of... And the kid has absolutely no idea what's going on and it's quite ridiculous and we do it as well and that's just our culture. But that's not their culture. They didn't do that when their children turned one or 10 or whatever it might be. In fact, the Jewish Talmud tells us how to waste a life. It says, morning sleep, I'm quoting, morning sleep, midday wine, and chattering with children destroy a man. So you want to you wanna destroy your life, right? You want to waste your life, sleep in, hit the bottle around noon, and spend your day with kids, right? That's how they say this will destroy your life. This is why the disciples keep, keep preventing children from coming to Jesus, because Jesus is too great for kids, Great people spend time with other great people. And these children are not great. 
In fact, this is not simply a discussion about the merits of kids. The kid is just an analogy. It's a picture of the ignored. It's a picture of the poor, the disabled, the shut-in, the prisoners, the immigrant. Jesus says, you want to be great, receive the disregarded. Pour into the people that could do nothing for you. Stop thinking about yourself and positioning yourself to be praised and whether you're better than someone else. Just cast yourself out of your mind and serve those people who are in need. Friends, is this not what we think is great about Jesus? This is not what we look at his life and say, that man is incredible. It's not because he's hanging out with all the presidents and premiers and generals. He's pouring himself into people that could do nothing for him. Chuck Colson, once the, when he served in the Nixon administration, was once walking with President Nixon. He writes, one brisk December night... As I accompanied the president from the Oval Office to his residence, Mr. Nixon was musing about what people wanted in their leaders. He slowed for a moment, looking into the distance across the South Lawn and said, the people really want a leader a little bit bigger than themselves, don't they, Chuck? There's a certain aloofness, a power that is exuded by great men that people want to follow. Of course, Colson would serve time with his role in the Watergate crime And he would come to Christ through that whole process. And he would later write about this encounter with President Nixon saying, Jesus Christ exhibited none of this self-conscious aloofness. He served others first. He spoke to, to those whom no one spoke. He dined with the lowest members of society. He touched the untouchables. He had no throne, no crown, no bevy of servants or armed guards. A borrowed manger and a borrowed tomb framed his earthly life. That's greatness. The least among you all will be great when we begin to consider others. And so Jesus brings up little Joey and says, you guys, you know, you want to be great. Okay, understand, Joey Joey needs someone to play with, right? Joey needs to go to the bathroom. Well, so who's going to take Joey? Joey lost his truck. It's a big crowd around here. Who's going to help Joey find his truck, right? Who's going to serve him? Instead of arguing about who's greatest, why don't you begin to serve those who could do nothing for you? Right? Because children don't praise you. They don't make speeches about how helpful you are. They don't, they don't have influence to get you ahead. Stop thinking about yourself. Start thinking about widows and the poor and the disabled and the shut-in. I appreciate what Andrew Murray once said. The humblest person is not the person who thinks poorly of himself. A humble person is someone who does not think of himself at all. I think that's greatness. The least among you all is the greatest. By the way, who was the least among them all or among us all? The Bible tells us that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on cross. You want to know who went from the highest to the lowest? His name is Jesus Christ. And therefore, he is the greatest. Right? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the greatest. And so watch him lower himself to serve you, to save you, that you too might forget about yourself. And stop thinking about who's going to build me up, who's going to feed me, who's going to stroke me, who's going to encourage me, and rather find the people that need to be served. That's your path to greatness. And when you seek this path, you know what you get? You you evidently get God. 
Verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. You see, you need to be humble to receive God. I wonder if you've come to the point where you believe that God is holy and just and righteous and that you are a sinner in rebellion against Him. I wonder if you've come to the point that therefore you don't need a little advice in life, a little boost from God, a little direction, but you need a Savior. I wonder if you come to the point to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to this earth to do just that, to live a perfect life and die on a cross as your substitute, bearing the wrath of God upon Himself that is due you, and three days later rose from the dead in order that you might be forgiven of all your sin, receive grace, receive the Holy Spirit, receive adoption into His family if you will simply turn from yourself and bow your knee to King Jesus. Have you received Christ? Friends, won't you you just do that right now? Will you not bow in your heart? God, I believe. I surrender. I give myself to Jesus. That you might know the God who made you forever. Jesus calls us to that. Well, lastly and quickly, there's a fourth sin we see here. It's the sin of rivalry. The sin of competition. Verse 49 John answered, Master, we have, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we try to stop him because he does not follow with us. So evidently there's an unnamed disciple casting out demons in the name of Jesus and he's not part of their group. And so John tries to stop him and he comes back to Jesus to tell him. It's clearly John is expecting Jesus' approval here, right? He's messed up now three times in a row. Certainly he's going to get you know, well, good job, John. boy, John. Way to go. He's kind of like the kid who draws a picture on the wall and then says, Daddy, I want to show you what I made for you, right? And expecting your approval and gets something far different. Well, this is what John gets. He gets a rebuke, as we see in verse 50. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against us is for you. One who is not against you is for you. Right? And there's somewhat of an irony here, right? Because what did the disciples, the apostles, just fail to do? Cast out a demon. And, and here's this unnamed exorcist working in Jesus' name, and he's doing what the disciples cannot do, and they decide the best course of action here is to stop him. And, and I could almost imagine a conversation between John and Jesus, and Jesus saying, okay, let me get this right, John. Uh, he's casting out demons. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And demons are good or bad? Well, yeah, they're bad. And so... Is it good to have a demon cast out or is it bad? Well, it's good, but, but he didn't go to our seminary, Jesus. Right? You know, he's, they worship weird. It's weird over there. Right? You see what's going on? It's this competition. There's a problem in our heart if we cannot rejoice in the, the, the success in the name of Jesus of other people simply because they're not part of our team. There's something wrong with us if we are suspicious and envious and jealous and critical of other denominations and other groups of Christians because they're not like us. Yeah, yeah, they're successful, but they're doing it the wrong way. Right? There's something wrong there. We are fighting the wrong enemy. This is what Jesus is warning them. He says, not against you. He's for you. He's not against you. J.C. Ryle pointed this out 200 years ago, writing, thousands in every period of church history have spent their lives in copying John's mistake. They have labored to stop every man who will not work for Christ in their way from working for Christ at all. They have imagined in their petty self-conceit that no man can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears their uniform. We forget 
forget, he continues, that no church on earth has an absolute monopoly of all wisdom. We therefore must learn to be thankful of sin as opposed, the gospel preached, and the devil's kingdom pulled down no matter who does the ministry. And so let's just be clear, Hamilton Baptist Church, right? And I, I love being a Baptist. Other Christians are not our enemies. The devil is our enemy. That's the one we fight. Now this, uh, this be clear, this is not, has nothing to do with major theological core Christian beliefs. I will not celebrate the ministerial success of someone who says he bears the name of Christ and yet denies the virgin birth or the bodily resurrection or the substitutionary atonement of Christ who denies the exclusivity of the gospel. I will not, this is not, has, has nothing to do with those who are so divergent from us that they deny the historical tenets of Christianity. This is about people who, who have different, different minor beliefs, right? And the kingdom of God is enormous and it is blessed by many wonderful congregations and they're all over Loudoun County. In fact, they're in every nation in this world doing God's work because they love Jesus. We should celebrate that. We should see them as our brothers and sisters and praise God for. Beware of the sin of rivalry. Beware of the sin of competition. I don't know, as you look at these sins, and certainly God has searched my heart. He was doing a fresh work in me this morning as I was praying for this message. That There's, there's a lot of room for growth in me. I wonder if there's room for growth in you, Christians. I wonder if you can see yourself here. I wonder if there's something God would help you to repent of. In fact, I find it interesting back in verse 41 as we end our time together in God's word that Jesus says, How long will I bear with you? How much long am I going to to bear with this? He doesn't answer that question. At least not in this text, but he answers it in his life. Do you know how long he bears with them? As long as it takes. Right? Because they would fail pretty fundamentally. Far greater than the failings we see there. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't give up on them. You almost expect at the base of the mountain, he says, Okay, guys, you are fired. Right? And just a job fair there at the foot of the mountain. We need, I need 12 more guys. We're going to try this again. But he doesn't. He doesn't walk away from them. He doesn't give up on them. He never says enough with you. And if you understand, please, if you are in Christ, if you know Jesus Christ, please understand, he will never give up on you. Some of you need to hear that today. Because you've been living in sin and you feel stuck and you don't know how to get up. And God is saying to you, listen, do you understand? I want to help you. I want so much more for your life. I want joy and delight. He wants better for you. And he says, I'm here for you. I'll never leave you. I've paid for all those sins and countless more. Now let's move. Let's move from this. Let's go. Let's get out of this junk and start living the life that I want to give you. He'll never give up. He will keep coming to you. And maybe he's coming to you right now. Maybe right now, some of you are just stuck, aren't you? He's saying to you through his word, let's move. Can we just get past this? I want to give you the life which I died for. I've come to give you abundant life. May God help us to repent. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that though we sin, just like these apostles and and much, much more, that you are so patient and long-suffering and gracious and will never walk away from us. You'll never give up with us. It's out of that confidence, out of that love, out of the work of Christ that that I I humbly ask you that will will you expose sin in our hearts right now? 
Will you please show us where we're living, what we're doing with no dependence on you? Will you, will you show us, Lord, where we're not submitting to you? Will you, out of your mercy to us, show us our pride and our self-preoccupation? Will, will you show us our rivalry and our judgmental hearts? Because in our heart of hearts, we want to be like Jesus. We just want to be more like you, Lord. We need your help. Will you help us? Will you put a fresh repentance in us? We might turn back to you. We pray for our friend here who may know everything there is to know about you but does not know you as their Lord and Savior. Will you convince them finally that the life that they were made for is found only in Christ and that sin only ultimately brings misery and ruin in this life and life to come? that they might turn even now and say, Jesus, I believe. I surrender. Do this for your glory and their great gain, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.